Discouragement is a real thing. One of the things I just love about the Word of God is that it is honest with us about our heroes. We see throughout the Word of God the breakdowns, the spiritual and moral breakdowns of our heroes. And it teaches us that the Word of God is honest. It doesn't hide from us the truth about what people go through, even men and women of God. And here, and a handful of other places, I think of the Psalms, for example. I think of the study of Job that we just went through. I think of King David. Here, the disciples. There are a handful of places in the Bible where we see men, women of God, dealing with discouragement, dealing with what I would also call disillusionment. They They're not seeing things correctly. They're not feeling what they they should. They're not hearing like they should be hearing. They're not doing what they should be doing. They are discouraged. And here in our text, we've got two disciples that are so discouraged, they're leaving Jerusalem, headed in the wrong way. It comes in one way or another to all of us. Discouragement does some point in your Christian journey, you will battle discouragement. Things don't happen like you had hoped they would. Things do not go the way you envisioned. You have become battered, sometimes emotionally, financially, physically, spiritually, relationally. There comes a time when every Christian deals with discouragement and every Christian finds out It's a battle. Faith is a battle. Trusting in God at times is a battle. Staying focused and encouraged and having a a heart of gratitude and joy, it is a battle. And honestly, consequently, there are multitudes who give up in the face of discouragement. It becomes so heavy, it becomes so hard, it becomes so discouraging that often people give up. There are pastors who give up pastoring nearly, I, honestly, I, it's hundreds, I believe, daily in just this country alone. There are people who are giving up on their marriages, their ministries, their family, their children, their drive to even serve God, their, their, their faithfulness to the house of God. And in our text, we find two disciples that basically gave up. They decided to leave the group. We don't know why they are going to Emmaus. But what we do know is when they got their heart right, they turned right back around and went back to Jerusalem. And so they were done. Whether they were fleeing for their own life, whether they decided, you know what, we've been duped this whole time. We thought he was the Messiah. He's not. And so now we got to figure out what, you know, what really was going on here. So we're going to leave and reprocess. We don't know why or what was going on. We just know it was the wrong step for them to be headed towards Emmaus. Jesus shows up and ultimately everything changes. This morning as we look at discouragement, I want to take the first half of this sermon and deal with discouragement. It's a difficult topic to talk about without being discouraging. But we are not going to stay there, right? We're going to look at the answer. What is the solution? What is the way out? Because we see Before this story is over, there's something that changes in these men. And I'm going to leave you with that. 
But it's important that we deal honestly with discouragement. And the reason that it's important that we deal honestly with discouragement, listen to me carefully, discouragement is dangerous. It's dangerous. Bad things happen when we allow our discouragement to dictate our actions. When we get discouraged enough that we start doing things we should not do or not doing things we should do, it can lead us down a path that's even worse than where we are. And so if you don't understand the dangers of discouragement, you might not really deal with it like you need to. Discouragement is something that needs to be battled. It's something that you've got to be willing to look in the mirror and say, we are at war, and I will not allow my heart to be taken over by fear and worry and doubt and depression and discouragement. Instead, I will have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I will have the fruits of the Spirit in my life, and that includes joy. So let's talk about the characteristics of discouragement and why it's important to understand. You've got to battle this battle, folks. Number one, the first characteristic of discouragement is that discouragement directs our steps. In verse 13, it says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. As I've already stated, we, can't, we don't really understand the motive, why they were going where they were going, but this was not where they were supposed to be. Jesus had told them he was going to rise from the dead. They should have been there waiting on him. They should have been rejoicing when they heard the news from these ladies whom they knew and trusted that an angel had told them Jesus had risen from the dead. But instead, they are so discouraged that they are headed to Emmaus to escape Jerusalem. And you'll find that discouragement will direct your steps. It'll cause you to walk away from things you should never walk away from. It'll cause you at times to go towards things you should never be going towards. Discouragement will alter your path. Now this is really important that we understand this so that when we are discouraged, we don't make big decisions that would alter the direction of our life in a temporary time of discouragement. You've got to have enough discipline in your life when you're discouraged to be honest about that. I am discouraged right now, and what I want to do is flee Jerusalem. I want to get out of this place. I don't want to sit and wait where God told me to sit and wait, or, 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 or whatever it may be. You've got to caution yourself against making decisions that will direct your path during a time of discouragement. Number two, Discouragement will cause us not only to change our course, but it will cause us to dwell on the past. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. It's, it's, I mean, it's, just, it's amazing to me. Jesus has risen from the dead. They've heard news that Jesus has risen from the dead, but they are so discouraged about everything that they witnessed in the previous days. Their mind is just like, no, I can't even go there. They, they had a certain picture of how it was going to go down. And even though Jesus tried to tell them, they argued with Jesus. I mean, they told him, no, that's not going to happen. 
Peter's like, that won't happen on my watch, never going to happen with me. All the disciples just sort of had this attitude that really, whatever Jesus is telling us is not really going to be that bad. I mean, he said that he was going to be delivered to the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees and the scribes, and that he was going to be crucified. He told them that was going to happen. Then it happens, and they're shocked. And right now, even though Christ is risen from the dead, and even though literally he is with them, but they can't sense that it's him, they're looking back at everything that did not happen like they thought it should happen. They're looking back at all the places where it seemed as if evil and sin and Satan had won the upper hand. And they're looking back on their past and are saying, this was wrong. This was wrong. This was wrong. And I thought this was going to happen, but it didn't happen. And this and this and this. And they're just, they're just together. They're walking together. They're talking together about everything that went wrong. You will find that discouragement will always dwell on the past. Everything that went wrong. If you're ever going to come up out of discouragement, one of the things you're going to have to do is choose to quit dwelling on the past. Here's why. You cannot fix the past. You cannot change it. There is no reverse button. There is no rewind. There is no time machine where you can hop in a time machine, go back in time, fix everything that needed fixed so that you can ultimately end up in a life where that didn't happen. It's done. It's over. It's in the past. And if you can't have any joy today, because of what happened to you back then, then you will never be able to have joy the rest of your life. Now, I understand that bad things happen sometimes. They do. Bad things happen. But it's part of living in a fallen world. You've got to understand that. One of the things that Jesus told his disciples was, did you not understand these things had to be? Like, this, this was necessary. It had to happen. That this was part of the plan. And in a fallen world, all of us at times, folks, we're going to experience bad things. People are going to be mean. People are going to be rude. People that should do something aren't going to do it. People that you, you trusted in to take care of you eventually, so they're going to they're gonna fail you. Might be parents. Might be a husband. Might be a wife. Might be church leaders. Might be this. Might be that. You cannot dwell on the past. I want to say this um, carefully, but I want to say it boldly. You are not the only person who has ever suffered. There are people who do go through awful things. We don't need to have a, a lemon showing contest this morning to see who had the worst lemons of life. Because this is the truth, though a lot of times people are discouraged, don't want to hear it. This is the truth. You're not the only one who's ever suffered. We all go through suffering. We all go through trauma. We all experience things that we shouldn't have to experience. It's part of living in a world where sin abounds and Satan is the prince of the air. It's just part of it. It is necessary. In other words, it must be. It's part of it. And we must see that through it all, that even in a world of sin, God cared enough to enter it and live it with us. And that while he has not promised that we will not suffer, Jesus has been tempted in all points like we were, yet without sin. 
and any degree of pain and suffering that you can point to and say, I was abandoned by my family. So was Jesus. I was abandoned by my friends. So was Jesus. I was abandoned by the church. So was Jesus. I was treated wrong. I was falsely accused. This was taken from me. I was stripped of this. I was hurt. I was wounded. So was Jesus. And so he can relate. The promise is not that he will never let us, you know, in a fallen world, experience the consequences of living in a fallen world. The promise is, as he told his disciples, lo, I am with you until the end. He is with us through it. But you cannot dwell on the past. You've got to stop. The third thing that we see here in our text, discouragement deadens our senses. In verse 16, it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, before I get to my point, I want to acknowledge that most likely this was a supernatural blinding, that God wanted to do something with these disciples. There was a conversation that needed to occur before God would open their eyes to see, oh, this is the risen Christ. There was some, if we read the text, there was actually some rebuke that needed to happen before God would open their eyes to see the truth. Jesus shows up himself and says, hey boys, what are you so sad about? Talk about deadened senses. Not only do they not seem, they're talking to Jesus and they're like, oh, you must be a stranger, have no idea what's happened here recently. Jesus is like, oh, what things? And they literally begin to tell Jesus the things that happened to him and why they're so sad. It is such an ironic moment. And I do not dispute that more than likely there was some type of kind of blinding of their minds and their eyes where they just did not see the risen Lord as they had seen him before. That said and acknowledged, it is still true that often when we are discouraged, our senses are deadened. What we think we see isn't really reality. What we think we heard isn't really reality. What we think is going on isn't really going on. It's like we just have no real true perspective of what's happening because we are so discouraged. We can't see right. We can't hear right. We can't think right. And we see everything through the lens of the world is bad. The world is negative. All is wrong. It's all hopeless. It's hopeless, 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 hopeless. And our senses are deadened. It's another reason to be very careful to make decisions in your time of discouragement that would alter the course of your life. Number four, the fourth characteristic or danger of discouragement, and really this is probably the only positive, is that discouragement is detected by others. And I'll explain why it's positive in a moment. But in Luke 17, Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? Because you look really dejected. And you'll find that often discouragement is detected by others. It's difficult to hide discouragement for long. You might be able to do it briefly. You might be able to check out through the Walmart check line without, you know, 
Now you got to check yourself out so you can definitely get through without anybody even knowing. And if you're discouraged, that's what you do. That's definitely what you do. You don't go through a line where you got to talk to humans. But you might be able to hide it a little bit. But you'll find that if you're discouraged long, the people who are closest to you, it's detected. It's detected in your tone of voice. It's detected in your demeanor. It's detected in your facial expressions. It's just detected in, 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 in your aura of, of who you are. It's just there's a sense of discouragement. And I would say this could be the only positive because often those who are closest to us during those times can actually tell. And they'll reach out and they'll say something. Those of you that are encouragers, the Bible talks in Romans chapter 12 about edifiers or encouragers. It talks about people who have the gift of mercy. If you're one of those types of people, these are the type of folks you need to have your radar up for like when they're discouraged so that you can try to come along and encourage them and speak some life to them. And I'm going to give you, you encouragers, a word of encouragement. Understand that when you're trying to encourage somebody who's really downhearted, it's normally not going to go well immediately. A lot of times they're going to argue with you. A lot of times they're going to try to tell you why you're wrong on your angle of being positive. And, and this is just the way that people who are discouraged are. You'll find that when you're discouraged, if you're honest, most of the time, you don't want to be encouraged. You just want everyone else to be discouraged with you. And you're looking to explain to people why you're so sad, why you're so discouraged, why things are so bad. What you really want is people to agree with that and come down and sulk with you in your pity party. And so encouragers understand that when you step in and actually try to encourage that person, a lot of times it's not going to go well immediately, right? They're not just going to be like, wow, you are such an encourager. My life has changed. But trust me, if you will speak the word of God to people, if you will speak the word of life to people and let that seed have a little bit of time to, to germinate in that heart, a lot of times a good word in good season it does a, a work in the next day, the day after, the week after. And so I want to encourage you, encouragers, you, that, you people that have, you know, the gift of mercy, be looking for people who are discouraged to be speaking life to them. And I would say that might be the only single positive that comes out of this deal of, of the, the characteristics of discouragement is that often it is detected by those that are closest to us. Number five, discouragement distorts the truth. Let's look at verses 18 through 21. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor? Listen, Jesus was not a visitor to Jerusalem. Who does not know? This is the one who knows all things. The things that have happened, they happened to him. There in these days. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Look at this. But we had hoped, not we hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now we have a clear acknowledgement they no longer see him as the Messiah. And then they add, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Discouragement distorts 
the truth. I mean, it was true that Jesus had died, but it wasn't true that he wasn't the Messiah. It was true that things didn't happen the way they thought they should happen, but it wasn't true that God wasn't in control. In fact, God was in complete, total, divine control the whole time. And Jesus tried to tell his disciples this. I mean, Jesus told them that no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down because I'm the good shepherd. Their mind could not fathom it. And even though it happened exactly like Jesus said it would happen, they still could not fathom it. It just didn't make sense to them. How could he be the Messiah? And something so awful happened to him. And you will find that when you are discouraged, discouragement will distort the truth. It's not that everything you believe is not true. It's that it's distorted. It's that what you think is going on isn't really going on. And you might be able to point to a, one fact, one thing that's true, and, 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 and yet your mind blows it up. And I want to give an example about two discouraged people. Both walk in the church this morning discouraged. Neither one of them knows it. One just got some really bad news. It's been a very difficult week. And for them, it was hard to even come to church. But out of obedience, they cared enough to show up this morning. But they really don't want anybody to talk to them. They just want to sit down. They want to get through church. They want to get out those doors. The other discouraged person was really hoping to talk to that person this morning. Saw him walk in. And that person one looked at person two and thought, I'm going to go talk to this person. And it was pretty clear that person didn't want to be talked to. And they sat right down. Made sure they didn't make any eye contact and just minded their own business. And now discouraged person one feels scorned. Starts thinking to himself, you know what? That jerk never says hi to me. That person has no business being here in the house of God, acting like they don't want to talk to anybody. You know what? Now that I think about it, he hadn't shook my hand in three weeks. Now that I think about it, I'm looking around in this place. There's 200 people sitting here, and less than five of them said hi to me. This has got to be one of the most unfriendly churches I've ever been in in my life. And all of a sudden, discouragement is distorting the truth. We tend to, when we're discouraged, make the worst out of everything. I mean, we make the worst of it. It's the, the most possible worst-case scenario there is. These guys, you know, all of a sudden, because Jesus died, they've, they've assumed He's not the Messiah. Well, it is true that He died. It's not true that He's not the Messiah. He is exactly who He said He is, and He said it was necessary that these things happen. We've got to guard our hearts in those moments when we're discouraged because we'll always see the worst in every situation. We'll see the worst in people. And there might be a tiny shred of truth. It might be true that he sat down and didn't look at you, but you have no idea anything beyond that. You've got to be careful filling in the facts when you don't know the facts. Discouragement will distort the truth. And the final characteristic of discouragement, before we start to look at the solution this morning, is that discouragement dominates the present. It dominates the present so much that you refuse to hear good news. 
Look what they acknowledge in verses 22 through 24. They said it's the third day. That's when Jesus said he would rise. Moreover, some women of our company, they knew these women. They trusted these women. They had traveled with them. They knew these women to be trustworthy followers of Jesus. Women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. I mean, you have got to be really, really, really discouraged to hear that news after Jesus said that would happen by people whom you know to be trustworthy companions and still be so discouraged, you're like, I'm out of this. I'm gone. Headed to Emmaus. But you will find that discouragement dominates the present. You don't care about good news. You, you, you've decided you're going to be sad. And just like I said, a lot of times when we get in discouragement, we don't really want to be encouraged. We just want everyone else to be discouraged with us. It'll dominate the present where you refuse to hear any good news. All you want to talk about is the past. What went wrong? But what about this? What about that? And then you want to get real pessimistic about the future. It's just always going to be like it was in the past. It's, there's never any hope. There's never anything good. And you can hear good news that is factual, accurate, good news, and still somehow just let it go over the top of your head like, well, it doesn't mean anything. Some angels appeared to some friends of ours. But, you know, we went, and he's already gone. It's amazing how discouragement can dominate your thinking in the present. Now, if you've battled discouragement, if you're battling it, here's what you'll know. Of those six characteristics I just mentioned, most of the time, it might be all of them to one degree or another, this is what discouragement looks like. Normally, it's at least like four or five of these are happening. And so I think you can see, right, if it's directing our steps, if we're dwelling on the past, if our senses are deadened, if it's got to the place where it's being detected by others, we're allowing ourselves to distort the truth, it's dominating the present. Can you see this is really an important thing to deal with in your life? This is something that you've got to grab a hold of and say, enough is enough. I am not going to live discouraged all the rest of my days. And thank God the story does not end here. This is not where it ends. In fact, we read the whole, the whole text, and what we know is something changes. These guys eventually run back to Jerusalem, and, and everything changes, and they're now declaring that the Lord has risen from the dead. What changes and what actions do we need to take that lead to overcoming discouragement? I use the word action carefully. I am a firm believer you will never come out of discouragement sitting on your hands, sitting on your butt, and waiting for somebody else to do it for you. There are some actions that you must make a decision that you are going to take if you're going to come out of discouragement. The first action is we see they listened to the Word of God. Jesus gave them a chance to speak, but when Jesus began to speak, they chose to listen. 
They didn't cut him off. They didn't argue with him. They started to listen. And I want us to look at what Jesus says to them. In verses 25 through 27, it says that Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want to work backwards through that text. We're going to go 27, 26, 25. 27. Concerning the prophets, he taught them about all the things beginning with Moses, and that specifically means Genesis. Moses is known for writing the first five books of the Bible, and so when he says beginning with Moses, it means he started in the beginning, and he began to explain all the things that pointed forward to him, And, don't miss it, he said, is it not necessary, in verse 26, is it not necessary that Christ had to suffer these things? He says, did you not understand Abraham and Isaac? That there there was someone that had to die? And that instead of the son having to die, that there was a lamb that could be slain in his place? Do you not understand that pointed forward? through the Lamb who would be slain for you? Did you not understand that when God led the people through the Red Sea, He was leading people out of slavery, and it was a picture that one day the Messiah would come and lead people out of the slavery of sin? Did you not understand that the Passover Lamb was a picture of the Christ who would one day die so that the death angel could pass over you? Did you not understand that all of these things in the Old Testament pointed forward not only to me, but to the suffering that I would have to endure. And they begin to hear. They begin to listen and they begin to see that their version of Jesus was not the Jesus of the Bible at all. That their version of a Messiah who would come that would never have to suffer and that wasn't going to die, their version of Him was not the Messiah of the Word of God. But they had missed too much. And as Jesus began to explain these things, their hearts began to open. I want to show you something that's difficult for those of you, if you're here this morning battling discouragement. Listen, I've I've battled discouragement many times in my life. If you're here this morning, you're battling discouragement, I want you to see something that's going to be hard to hear. It's in verse 25. What was Jesus' estimation of their discouragement? Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe. If you want to know what God thinks of our discouragement, there you have it. It's foolish. It's nonsense. It's a lack of faith in His Word. It's foolish. Could be a lack of faith. Could be ignorance. The Bible tells us that God's people perish for lack of knowledge. They don't know. They don't know that God never said we wouldn't suffer. God never said that. There's nowhere the Bible says, right, that if you love God and you serve God that you're not going to suffer. Nowhere does it say that. Instead, He told His disciples, I will be with you until the end of the age. And then while He was with them, they all die as martyrs. They're imprisoned. 
They're falsely accused. They're beaten and mocked. And yet they get up and skip off with a sense of joy that they were worthy to be persecuted. And so God being with you and the Lord being with me does not mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean that we'll never be done wrong. God has never promised to shelter us from the consequences of living in a world that is battered by sin. God is sheltering us from His wrath and our direct consequences related to Him. But you live in a world where sin abounds and where evil abounds and where Satan is the prince of the air. Folks, I don't care who you are, whether you're saved or not, we're all going to suffer from time to time. We're all going to go through difficulty from time to time. Jesus began to speak to them and they listened to the word of God. He said, you guys are being fools here. And he began to clarify or point to all the things in the Old Testament that pointed to him. Their focus was brought into a correct view of Christ as they listened to the word. Number two, second action. Not only did they listen to the word of God, they pleaded for more time with God. In verse 29, it says they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. He urged them, or they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. There must be a sincere desire to spend time with God. Talking about truly coming out of discouragement. You'll find that when you're discouraged, you normally don't actually want to spend time with God. You don't really want to pray. Really, you want to remain in your pity party. You might pray at a meal, right? You might not have no problem praying in a group where it's kind of specific and it sort of dictates what we pray. But I'm talking about spending time with God, away from it all. A lot of times when you're discouraged, you don't want to spend time with God away from it all. Sometimes it's because you know what God's going to say. Sometimes, because we get bad little attitudes about it, and we act like children sometimes, we think we're going to teach God, you know, we're going to throw a little tantrum we're going to teach God a lesson that if he doesn't do what I do, I'm not going to spend time with him. Do what I want him to do, I'm not going to spend time with him. I have found in my own personal life that in the greatest times of discouragement, one of the things that is always consistent, they are my least times of prayer. I'm anxious, I'm depressed, I'm discouraged, and I'm really spending the least amount of time in private personal prayer. Not only were they listening to the Lord, but now they're pleading for more time with Him. And you will find that one of the greatest tools to breaking your discouragement is learning to plead with God, God, reveal yourself to me, giving God time to do that, sitting with God, seeking the face of God. In Jeremiah chapter 29, it tells us that God said, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is not a passive seeking. This isn't a showing up to church with a little chip on your shoulder because you're angry at God and he's not doing what you want with your hands under your seat saying, oh, bless me if you want God. That's not this. This is a very real sense of, God, you're all that I need. I know that you're all that I need. 
And I, whatever it takes, God, reveal yourself to me. I want to sit in your presence. I want to know who you are. I want to hear your voice. And once I hear it, God, I want to hear it more. I need more of you, less of me, more of you, less of this world. God, give yourself to me. They pleaded. They urgently pleaded with him to stay. And we see the result of listening to the Word of God. I mean hearing it in the depth of your heart. The result and pleading for more time with them, we find in the third action that we've got to take, they entered into communion with God. In Luke 24, verses 30 through 31, it says, When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Keep in mind that about three nights earlier, um, Jesus had actually sat with these same disciples and they broke bread. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. He poured the wine, said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. And so they had that final meal. And the, the meal is what we call communion. It is the, the sitting down and having community together where we are consciously remembering the, the, the body and blood of Christ. And in this moment, when they enter into that with the Lord, their eyes are open and they see Him for who, re who He really is. The significance of that is this. It's a hard thing for me to put into words. I'm going to do the best that I can. When we truly enter into relationship with God and our faith becomes more than motions, more than just believe this, more than just obedience, but it, it comes, becomes communion with God where we know that we are with Him and He is with us, it changes everything. But we cannot enter into that deep communion with God if we're not listening to His Word and we're not truly seeking Him with all of our hearts and pleading for Him to reveal Himself to us. Can I tell you that in my own life, I've dealt with discouragement, I've dealt with depression, and at least for Joplin Emerson, personally, every time I come out on the backside of it, I think to myself what Jesus already said. I think, what a fool. Are you kidding me? I might feel like the world's caving in, I might feel like things are too difficult, too bearing, and I, and, and, I, and I realized, man, you haven't really been seeking God. You haven't been spending time with God. I, I, I just start being conscious about trying to hear the Word of God in my life, more conscious and trying to let God speak to me when I'm doing my Bible study. And I'm like, I'm going to get disciplined into pushing into my prayer closet. And I find that place where I'm alone with God, and I'm seeking God, and it's like all of a sudden, I don't know a better way to say it, but it's like all of a sudden, the presence of God is there. And there are a few times in my life that I can say are more precious in the moments where I had a consciousness that God was with me. My eyes are closed and there's just an awareness that He is there. Those of you that want to shoot me an email later this week and say, hey, God's everywhere at all the time, just stop. Stop. Your God loves you more than that than to be so distant from you that you just have to, by faith, your whole life, try to believe He exists. And there is such a thing as the manifest presence of God, where He 
makes himself known in this realm. And it is possible to have times with God where his nearness is so real that there is an awareness in your spirit that God is near. That is possible. And I'm telling you, I've experienced it. And the irony is, is that in those moments when that happens, all of a sudden I'm like, dude, what were you so worried about? How foolish. It's like I forgot that my God is the one who holds the world together. That my God, who loves me and has adopted me as a son and has given me his nature and loved me so much that he gave his only begotten son to die so that my sins could be forgiven, that that God is my God and that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that if God is for me, who could be against me, that he is sovereign, he is in control, and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, you've been, you've been an idiot the last month, man. You've allowed all these other things and looking at this and looking at you've allowed all these things to, to strip you of your joy and cause you to be discouraged, and it's fair that Jesus' assessment of me in that moment is, what a fool. What a fool. Because God is good. And I'm his son. And no matter what goes wrong, he's so good and so smart and so powerful, he could take the thing, even if it was evil, and use it. I mean, he's incredible. We can say of our God what was meant for evil. God took it and used it for good. You see, it takes some time, right, to hear God. Let, let, let the Word of God begin to resonate, and I hear it in my heart. And it takes a little bit of time being willing to seek Him and spend some time with Him. But it's when you enter into that sweet communion, and there's just a sense of, I know that God is with me, and in the end, that's all that matters. All of a sudden, it's like my discouragement, the things that were so big, the things that were weighing me down, the things that felt so heavy. It's like, how can those things even matter at all? And all of a sudden, that, that, that burden lifts. When our faith becomes more than just knowledge of the Bible, when our faith becomes more than just people we worship with, or services we attend, or concepts we believe, but when our faith becomes the motivating force behind what we do, and it leads us to communion with God. We use that word relationship with God a lot. It's really the same concept. It's communion. It's where we are in a community with God. We are in a relationship with Him. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's real. Everything changes. I want to conclude and talk to two groups of people. First of all, the discouraged this morning. If you are discouraged, I want to ask you to consider something with me about our text. Would you agree with me that in our text... Nothing changes. It's not as if Jesus later rose from the dead. He was already the conqueror of death, hell, and the grave. Nothing changed but their perspective. Their perspective changed of the truth. I also want us to note that Christ was there all along. They just didn't know it until verse 31. And that's when everything changed. But he was there. So I want to encourage you, if you're dealing with discouragement, do not give up. 
don't give up this morning. Ask the Lord to help change your perspective, to see the truth and not to let the truth that you see be distorted. And then concerning all of us, whether you're dealing with discouragement or not, don't we all want that type of faith? Where we are in communion with God and there's just a sense of His nearness? I want you to notice that it did not come by service. It wasn't as if they did something and worked so hard and did so much Christian service that all of a sudden their hearts were burning ablaze. It wasn't by giving. It wasn't by tithing. It wasn't by supporting missions. It wasn't through church services. It wasn't through small groups. What was it? It was through hearing the Word of God, hungering and thirsting for more, and praying and pleading with Him until they entered into that communion. I think sometimes it's actually more simple than we make it. All of those things that I mentioned, they're good things, and really they could help us to hear the Word of God. But you as an individual have to make the decision that you're going to seek Him with all of your heart. You as an individual are the only one that can truly plead with God. God, reveal yourself to me. Take me deeper. Help me to hear your voice. And once you hear God and once God answers, you're the only one that can plead with Him to say, God, I want more. I want more. I want more of your word. I want more of you. I need to hear your voice. And I want to hear it more. This is a decision that happens at the individual level. And really, when we look at it, it's so simple. This morning, are we doing the simple things that lead us to victory in Christ, or are we trapped in discouragement?